All right, I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. You're, you're heading in your Bible, uh, it may say something like the high priestly prayer. It probably does. It's often what it is thought of and called of. I like to think of it as the Lord's Prayer, um, but, but uh, because really it, it is the Lord's Prayer uh, as we look at uh, the Lord praying to His Father. And a couple Sundays ago, right before Mother's Day, I guess, I kind of introduced this passage, I guess it was an introduction, that's what I called it anyways, on verse 1. And so now in the next few Sundays, we're going to uh, dig more deeply into this, this prayer and spend a, a consecutive Sundays uh, within this prayer. I, I do trust that you find uh, this time meaningful. And it's a prayer that often when I uh, don't know how to pray or uh, such a beautiful heartfelt prayer. So this morning, we're just going to cover these five verses in John chapter 17, verses one to five, and God's inspired and errant word reads, and Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word, upon your prayer, upon a prayer prayed to you uh, by a son, by your son. And now would your spirit, Lord, open up and illuminate this text, our hearts and our minds. Uh, Father, may we be receptive uh, to what uh, we need, to what you have for us. Father, each one of us are individual people. And each one of us, just like any other living organism, Lord, we, we have different needs and different requirements. And so, Father, I pray that you, the great searcher of the hearts and minds, the omniscient, the omnipotent, Lord, that you would search our hearts and minds and give us exactly uh, what each individual person here uh, needs here this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. The only true God. Ask anyone today what is truth, and you're sure to start an interesting conversation. The concept of truth has clearly fallen on hard times, and the consequence of rejecting truth is having devastating effects on society. And so what is truth? This one eternally significant question in the Bible was asked by an unbeliever, Pilate, the man who handed Jesus over to be crucified. And Jesus turned, or turned to Jesus, Pilate turned to Jesus in his final hour and asked, what is truth? It was a rhetorical question. It was a cynical response to what Jesus had just revealed when he said, I am, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. 2,000 years later, the whole world breathes Pilate's cynicism. Some say truth is a power play constructed for the purpose of controlling the ignorant masses. To some, truth is subjective. The individual world of preference and opinion. Others believe truth is a collective judgment the product of cultural consensus. And still others flatly deny the concept of truth altogether. What's your truth? 
may not be my truth, and what's my truth may not be your truth. What is truth? Is there anything true? Can we know the difference between what is true and what is just a lie? Is there such a thing as objective truth, or is truth only subjective? I am of the opinion that what is true today is not defined by facts, that is evidence, but rather what is true today is defined by feelings. What is true biblically, what is biblically accepted as truth, has fallen out of favor to the God of feelings. We must follow the text, no matter how it makes us feel. And so I I want to remind you this morning, the purpose statement, if you will, that John has that he gave at the end of the book, end of this letter, for writing this gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 31, you're probably quite familiar with it by now, I quote it often, when John says, these things I have written. Why have you written these things, John? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Why should I believe that? So you may have life in his name. That is the whole purpose why John wrote this gospel. And in, and Jesus says in 17, verse 3 of our text here today, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. And in Paul's Sermon on the Mount, or Sermon on the Mount, uh, on Mars Hill, there in Acts chapter 17, he says this, He said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it. This God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And so today, the canon of Scripture is complete. And men are without, men were without excuse. Jesus said in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, will make you free. God has fully revealed himself to all, and there is no one who can claim on that last day that he did not or she did not know the truth. With that, I want to turn to our text that is before us this morning, and from this text, As you can imagine, I want to draw out four truths we have in our text here before us. Verses 2, 3, 4, and 5. I'll go in that order. True authority, true knowledge, true accomplishment, and then finally from verse 5, true aseity, true self-existence. True self-existence. But I want to, uh, just again to refresh your memory, read verse 1 and make very few comments on it since we spent a whole service on it two Sundays ago. But Jesus starts out this prayer to His Father with, with uh, a Father, the hour has come. 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. One of the first things, the first thing we must recognize from this prayer of Jesus as he's coming to the end of his life, as he's coming to the time where he will be turned over and handed over to Pilate, handed over to the systems of the world to be crucified, to be put to death. Uh, by a system that could not handle the truth. The number one thing on the mind of Jesus was what? Was to glorify His Father. The number one thing on the mind of Jesus was not necessarily you and I, but the number one thing on the mind of Jesus was to glorify and be obedience to the Father. This must be our concern also. As we come to the Lord in prayer, as we come to the Lord in worship, as we go through life and as we seek out uh, uh, counsel, as we seek out direction and course for our life, the first and foremost thought in our mind was what would bring and what will bring maximum glory to God. We are created to worship. We will worship something if we're atheist, if we're agnostic, if we're deist. We will worship something because we are created to worship. First and foremost, our worship must lead to glorifying God. And let us now turn to to verse 2. And what will be our focus uh, this morning, at least to start, and, and as I have a habit of doing it, to circle around and, and kind of bring up the final point as my point I will follow that same procedure here this morning. But verse 2, it starts out with, even as you gave him, and Jesus continues to pray, even as you gave him, meaning referring to himself, even as you gave him authority. Now, now of course, we're going to have to hone in on this word authority because it was such an important word for Jesus that he brought it out here in his prayer to the Father. True authority, as I, I call this. Now, authority, we obviously, we totally understand what authority is, right? We may like authority, we may not like authority, but we kind of understand what it is. But in the context of, of Jesus, what is it? It is just absolute power. That's all it is. It's control. And, and in the theological terms, it would be divine sovereignty. It is that God, that Jesus is in control of every aspect of our life. Of all our comings and our goings, Jesus' hand, God the Father's hand, God's the Father's direction and guidance is over it. This is the supreme power that is being spoken of here as Jesus acknowledges that you, that God gave me this absolute supreme sovereignty, this supreme power. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, as before Jesus ascended to heaven to take his rightful place beside the, the Father at his right hand, he said to the disciples that were there to observe the moment, he said, All authority has been given to me on heaven. I find this very interesting. In heaven and on earth. So it's not just his authority, doesn't just for the earth as he walked upon this earth. His authority isn't just uh, uh, given to Him and granted to Him in heaven, but it is heaven and on earth. And before we continue, before we continue here this morning, we too must. We must understand the source of authority. Authority does not come from you. Authority does not come from me. 
Authority does not come from our elected officials. Authority, true authority, comes only from God the Father. We must acknowledge that any authority that exists today has been given, has been granted, has been allowed by God the Father. Romans 13, 1. A, a, a passage of, of Romans that we're, we're quite familiar with, especially as we, we think about authority, where Romans chapter 13, 1 says this, as Paul starts out and acknowledges, there is no authority except from God. And then he continues to add commentary to that exact point and how that is fleshed out, how that is lived out in the world here before us. In John chapter 19, verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, Pilate, you have no authority. You can kill my life. You, you can kill me. You can take my life from me. You can do whatever you want. But Pilate, you understand, you only have that ability because God has allowed it. God has given you that authority. Unless God has granted you and given you that authority, you could not take my life. You could not at all. So we must understand this morning that there is no authority that we possess, that we have, that we claim to have, that has been not been given to us. It was this understanding that the centurion had when the centurion came to Jesus and said, Jesus, heal my servant. This centurion, who was a non-believer initially, became a believer, understanding authority. Where Jesus, or the, 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 uh, the, the centurion says this, to say in Matthew chapter 8, Lord, he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, go here and, and, and that one goes. And I say to another, come and, and he comes and to my slave, do this. And he does it. And so, Jesus, I understand authority, and I understand you have supreme authority. You are sovereign. You have absolute power. So don't even humble yourself by coming into my house. Although I am a ruler, although I, am, I also am in a position of authority that has been granted to me by the people, but I'm not worthy of your authority coming to my house. Just say the word, and it will happen. And Jesus did what? Jesus acknowledged that this man who was an unbeliever had more faith than many that claim they are believers. Why? Because he understood. He understood authority and who has it and who doesn't, or if you have it, where that authority came from. And there is nothing that you have that has not been given to you. The very breath in your lungs has nothing to do with you, but has been given to you by the one, by God, who has absolute authority. Think about that for a minute. The very breath in our lungs is not produced by our lungs unless our lungs are given permission to function as they have been created. And so that's the first point here this morning, and that is true authority. We must understand that before we can, we can go on. And next, we want to look at this verse a little closer. And what does this, how does this verse, uh, or how does this authority play out? We see in verse uh, 2, you have given him authority over what? Over all flesh. And not just all flesh, but you've also given him authority over all whom you have given him. 
And so there's two alls here. It's being spoken of two groups of people that Jesus is lifting up here this morning. And so, and so first, uh, we're going to look at the first group that Jesus is acknowledging that he has authority over, and that is all flesh, sarks. So it, 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 it's, it's just all created things. And so as we think about, about flesh, uh, it's literally every breathing, living, cold-blooded, warm-blooded, whatever you may be here this morning. I hope I'm warm-blooded. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I suppose it is. I'm not, I don't know. Anyways, off topic. Let me get back on track. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Jesus has authority over all flesh. In John chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Over and over and over and over. I touched on the topic briefly throughout John, but as we continue through John, I'll become much more pointed. Uh, Over and over and over, we understand and we acknowledge and that we see that all things have been given into the hands of Jesus by God the Father. And and if you're one of those, those nerds, uh, I say that in a positive light because I am one and, and uh, maybe one other offspring of mine here that would fall in that camp. But um, Hebrews, in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, if you want further to, to dig a little more on, on, on the inclusiveness of all authority that has been given, given to Jesus. And so this first all authority, all flesh, is universal. It's universal. It is for, for all. It is for, it is common grace, if you will, if you want to, if you want to think of it in those, uh, theological terms. The second all is specific. The second all is not for all, but is specifically for those. What does the text say? It says what it says, that to all whom you, that God has given him, given Jesus, Jesus may give eternal life. This is this very specific all that Jesus is now honing in on here this morning. In verse 24 of John chapter 17, Jesus says this, I desire that they also whom you have given me. Uh, Four or five times throughout this prayer, Jesus acknowledges that there are certain ones that the Father has given him for salvation for eternal life. In John chapter 6 verse 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, Jesus says, I won't turn them away. Listen, over and over and over again, we are told in the biblical text that all who come to Christ, he will not reject anyone who turned to Christ. We must under, understand that this morning as we, we continue on this path. J- uh, John chapter 6, verse 39. Now, this is the will of him. This is the will of God who sent me, Jesus says, that all that he has given, nothing is lost. This, again, step back, this point, all authority, right? Sovereignty, absolute power. It is in that sense and in that case that Jesus is saying, all he has given me, none will be lost. This is supreme authority and supreme power. In John chapter 10, uh, John chapter 10, verse 28. And Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and, and they know me. Verse 28. And I give them eternal life, 
and they will never perish. I mean, it's quite clear, is it not? And they will never perish, and no one, listen, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. None. It's a lasting security. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than I am. He's greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's supreme authority. That's supreme power that the Father has, the ability that He's given the Son. Back to John chapter 17 in our text here today, verse 12. And Jesus says, while I was with them, right? Because we need to understand this. Jesus says this. Jesus says this. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Because in light of what we just said, there's Judas, right? What gives? This explains it. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, God. This is the prayer of the Son to the Father, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one was lost. Not one perished, but the son of perdition. Why? So that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Listen, I don't know that the biblical text can be more clear than it is here, that Jesus that God the Father has absolute authority, has absolute power to weld that authority, to weld that power, to divvy it out, whatever type of language or words you want to add to that, to do with that power and authority whatever He likes. And we'll get there to the end to put a period on that that sentence. But but, but first, uh, again for you, I want you to know that your life is not an accident. Your life is not a mistake. Your life is not a waste. Your life has been given to you on purpose and for a purpose. Do you understand? The God of the universe, who welds absolute authority, absolute power, who's sovereign over all, has given you your life. You think that's a mistake? You you think the God who is in control of all is going to make a mistake? I would think not. Think about that in your life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what your life faces on a day-to-day troubles and times. But it's on purpose for a purpose. Put it in that perspective and see how your thought process pans out from there or works itself out from there. So anyways, that's true authority. Second, I want to go to verse 3, and we want to see um, uh, true knowledge. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. Uh, The purpose for this true authority is to give eternal life. And now in verse 3, Jesus identifies or fleshes out or defines what eternal life looks like. What it is. And Jesus says eternal life is this. So that I can be happy, fat, and wealthy. But so that we can have eternal life. And and so uh, eternal life is to know God. And so we want to take that little phrase that I put together, and we're gonna we're gonna just just dig into that just a little bit. Uh, Eternal life. I mean, I, I mean, obviously we know what eternal life is. It's a period of unending time, right? Life unending. 
Life that goes on forever. Think about this for a moment. Do you want your current life to continue forever and ever in the current state it's in? I would think most of us would say no. So Jesus, if you're saying, now my life is just fine, so I'm not saying, hear, hear me out, I mean, I'm not saying that, but just to, just to try to put this in the context of what Jesus is saying of eternal life, and so he's not speaking about the here and the now that lasts forever, though there's moments of our life we may want to last forever, and there's other moments of life we can't wait till it's over, but we must be careful of what Jesus is teaching here. This is a spiritual thing. Christians have eternal life now. We have it now. We have the promise of eternal life now. And yet it is not fully realized until the life to come. See, eternal life for the Christian in the here and the now is security. Security in Christ. We have eternal life. Jesus says, look, nobody's going to steal you away from me. I'm not going to let you go. This is eternal life that we have now. But it'll be fully realized. Theologians call that glorification, right? When we too ascend to heaven and we're created perfectly, exactly, before the curse, exactly God's intention for us. In John chapter, or 1 John, as John is an old man when he writes 1 John, and he writes it from a great-grandfatherly perspective, possibly. I like to see it as that. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, and he, he uses this word children a lot. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Right? I mean, life must have not been all that easy. They had moments just like we have moments. And he's encouraging them to stay the course. We know that when he, that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And we will be known by him just as was meant before the foundation of the world. All who have eternal life, all will have eternal life, some with God and some absent from God. Eternal life is to know God. Now, that's eternal life, but what does it mean to know, to know God? Well, we know what know is, right? But in the sense here, it, it, it is with a personal objective. So it's not just to know something, uh, just to, to, to know it, but it's to know. It's a, it's a personal relationship, if you want to use that here. And, and I might want to add this. Before, um, before this knowledge, before it can be in the heart, right? Because often we talk about this head knowledge. You know, some people are thought of as really heady or something. But be, I want to offer to you, before it can be in the heart, it has to start in the head. If it doesn't start from the head, it can't get to your heart. Now, that's my idea. Well, I think it's biblically sound, but you can wrestle with that a bit. But I do want to go for a little bit of a proof text, if you will. I want to go to Romans chapter chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, I've been gone for a couple weeks. How much time do I have? <laughs> oh, as long as I want. I, I like you. Special smarties for you. Um, we'll wrap this up here in another few minutes, but um, um, 
I, w- I want to go to Romans. Uh, um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Where Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God, it's evident, it's clear within them. Why? For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen and understood through what was made so that they are without, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, See, here we go. For even though they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be be wise, they became, became foolish. Became foolish. So there is a knowledge that we can certainly have, that we can certainly obtain, that can be very heady, that doesn't make it into our heart. And so I, I get that. And, and, I, and I take that, and I understand that warning, that hesitation that you may have. But I will still stick fast, though, that before it can end up in your heart, it has to start with the head, which seems to be very much what Jesus is implying here. We must know what we believe, right? How many times have I said this? We must know what we believe. But knowing what we believe without why we believe it will not sustain us. It will not be lasting. Listen, we all know what we believe. (laughs) You can just go out on the street and ask anybody what they believe and grab a cup of coffee or a Coke or whatever your beverage of choice is and and sit back because they're going to fill your head with what they believe. Ask them why they believe that and you'll get me, I don't know, it's what I feel. Here we go, right? This is the circular argument that happens so often. So what I'm offering to you Christians, we, we must know what we believe, but we must know why We believe it. In John chapter 17, verse 25 to 26, Jesus says exactly this. A righteous father, as he ends up his prayer, although the world has not known you, yet I have made you known, and these have known that you have sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. See how many times Jesus talks about this known? It's this knowledge. It's this we must first know, and it's Jesus. It's the Spirit. That's why I always pray. For the Spirit to illuminate and open our minds and our hearts to the text. Because it is God who opens our minds so it can get to our heart. So it can get to our heart. In Chronicles, as David talks to his son Solomon, he says this. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know God. Serve Him, the whole heart and a willing mind. For Yahweh searches all hearts and understands every intent of thoughts. If you seek him, here's a condition. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Listen, these two truths go hand in hand. One without the other is foreign to the biblical text. There is true authority. That is divine sovereignty. And there is human responsibility. We have both that cannot be separated from the biblical text. Every single one of us are under the control of divine sovereignty. And yet every single one of us have our own human responsibility to search, to seek, to search out, and to surrender to Christ. You must understand that. So that's true authority, true knowledge, We come to true accomplishment. 
What was the work that Jesus accomplished in verse 3? This is eternal life. Verse 4, I'm sorry. Verse 4, I have glorified you you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Oh, what was this work? I mean, well, obviously in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, uh, Daniel prophesied about it way back there where he says to finish the transgression, to make end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I cannot say it any better than that. The work of Jesus was to offer forgiveness, offer salvation, offer hope and life to those without hope and life. He came to die upon that cross because that's what society chose to put an end to his life. But he laid it down freely and he did it under their, their, their authority. But it was so that you and I can have the opportunity to seek and to search out Christ. This was the work that Jesus came to do. To satisfy the wrath of Father God. Jesus came to bring together man and God. He says, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And Jesus says, I have given eternal life to all the Father has given me. That is the work. This is the work that Jesus is speaking of here. The accomplishment is as specific as that. To reconcile people to God, to bring God and people into this relationship and fellowship with one another that has been broken all those years ago. This work was something that only Jesus could do. Jesus did not, Jesus did not come into the world to tell us what we have to do. Listen, Jesus did not come into the world to tell us what we have to do. Jesus came to do something for us which we could never do for ourselves. Do you understand? Do you get that? Divine sovereignty. Ephesians chapter 8, verse 2. Paul makes this very clear, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? This is not of yourselves. Why? So that you can't boast about it. So that you can't brag about how you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and saved yourself. That's why it is the gift of God. Does a gift cost you anything? If it does, it's not a gift, is it? No, not at all. It's in Christ alone. Romans 10, 13. All human responsibility. All who call upon the name of the Lord. You must call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Jesus glorified the Father on earth by accomplishing the work the Father gave Him to do. You and I also have a work to do, right? As long as we're breathing, as long as we're living, God has given you work. I don't know what it is. God has given us work to do. As long as we're still living and breathing, God has given us responsibility to work for His kingdom, to work for His cause. If you know what it is, continue forth. Ask God to reveal what that may be to you. Just as Jesus was given work to do, so have you and I been given work to do from the Father. And finally, we'll we'll, we'll finish up with verse 5, true aseity. I I use the word aseity. It's just a theological term. It's self-existent, or out of self, actually. Uh, Two two words put together, out of self. So it's... um, uh, true aseity, and this is going to be my point. So, so what am I saying here? Jesus says in verse 5, not the fa- not Father. He, he comes back around, and he, and, he, and he starts this prayer here at the end of this paragraph. He finishes it the way he, he started it, and he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you. From when? From before the world was. From, 
Father, give me the glory that we had together before the Can you think of when the world wasn't? I mean, how do you get your mind around that? This is the prayer of Jesus as we get to, to listen in to how the Son prays to the Father. The Gospel of John begins not with the virgin birth, but with eternity past. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Listen, all things came into being through Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Just get your mind around those couple verses for a moment. John chapter 8, verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And that blew the people's minds. It should blow our mind also. This is the aseity of Christ out of self. It's self-existence. And what, what am I honing? Why am I pounding on this? It's because Jesus, because God doesn't need anything. Everything that is, everything that will be, everything that was, is so because of the absolute authority and power of God. Verse 24, before the foundation of the world, Jesus says, you loved me. Before the foundation of the world, again, over and over and over, he makes this point. The Father loved the Son after the cross. The Father loved the Son because of the work that he did upon the cross. No. Jesus acknowledges this is, now, now think about this point. Jesus is praying to the Father before he ever went to the cross. And he says, You loved me before the world ever was. And I want to question if God has absolute sovereign power or not. Really? I'm just a pot of clay. I'm going to question the potter, as Romans 9 would tell me. Really? Psalm chapter. 139, verse 13. This is for you. You formed me in my inward parts. You wove me together in my mother's womb. God of the universe wove you together. You two have been known before the foundation of the world ever was. Again, there is not a single person who is an accident. Who is an accident in the womb or outside the womb. You've been created by God. Jeremiah says, before I was formed, you in the womb, I knew you. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us. He chose us in Him, for Him, before the foundation of the world. He didn't look down no quarter of time. Before the foundation of the world ever was, He chose us. So what's my point? What do I want you to take away this morning? This, that the God who is sovereign, the God who has or will reveal himself to you, the God who hung upon the cross and cried out, it is finished. The God who is self-existent, who created ex nihilo out of nothing, has prayed for you. Do you understand that? In John chapter 17, as Jesus prayed before the cross, he had you in mind. It is in this God in whom you find your very existence, your life, your future. Truth is often elusive, but there is only one true God from whom comes all truth. Do you know this God? Lord, I 
you for your words. I thank you for your prayer. I thank you for praying for me. I thank you for praying for each one of us before we were ever even a thought in our father and mother's minds. Before our father and mothers ever were, you prayed for us. Father, we can't possibly get our mind wrapped around that idea. But with your help, with your spirit, you, you can help us. And so, Father, we acknowledge that you are sovereign. We acknowledge that you are in absolute and complete control. And we also acknowledge that you love us as no one possibly can. Is there any place any of us would rather be than in the hands of an all-powerful, all-loving God? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.